In some ways, the Korean War itself probably is deserving of a, of a session uh, in itself. I'm not going to go into actually a lot into the Korean War, but to give a bit of a flavour, you know, I think it's important to you know, understand something about you know, like what had, uh, you know, what had happened. So the, you've got a situation where you know, Japan's actually occupied Korea, that when the end of the Second World War comes, you know, in '45, with the um, well, with the dropping of the atom bomb, J J you know, Japan surrenders. Just prior to that, actually, in terms of the, the Russian, you know, offensive against Japan, the, the Russia's actually occupied the north of Korea. But the Japanese surrender actually releases a, a massive amount of, uh, of social discontent and, and exhilaration. Uh, the whole of the Korean Peninsula. You know, thought that the beginning of their liberation was coming with with Japanese surrender, and in and what you get, particularly in the south, actually, is a, a massive outpouring of actually people's commissions, uh, you know, workers' councils of of sorts, of a scale which actually like shocked the powers that be. To give a bit of a flavour of that, this is actually an American journalist writing in 1946. The situation threatens to turn into a full-scale revolution, involves hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, so these these committees actually break out, you know, all over, you know, South Korea because the, the with the surrender of Japan, yeah, you know, there's a you know a political vacuum. In the north, there's something a bit more of a structure because uh, you've got Kim Kim Il Sung, who's been part of and got a lot of credibility as part of the anti-Japanese uh, resistance, is installed effectively with the with the support of, you know, Russia, uh, Russia in the north. But in the south, of course, the, the People's Commissions are a threat uh, to the existing ruling class. Uh, the, U the U.S. is quick to try to maintain a you know, presence in, you know, in, you know, in South Korea, and you get a massive degree of, uh, of repression, and the, the People's Commission's actually put down militarily for a long period of time. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into that. I think it's probably deserving of another story you know, sometime, but just to give a flavour of, in some ways, the history of Korea is very similar to the history of Vietnam, is that Russia takes over the, the North under pressure from the United States Stalin agrees to not go any further than the 38th parallel, and that effectively divides a country which has been relatively unified for, a, you know, like a thousand years sort of thing. So it's a very fundamental kind of division. The regime which is built in, in the South, you know, is a pro-US regime, and they install, you know, Syngman Rhee. But there's a, an element that comes out of the People's Commission and that the explosion with, with, the, end of, with the surrender of Japan, you know, of there being a, a sentiment and a real, very real struggle for national liberation, a, a support both north and south of actually liberating the peninsula. In, um, what's the date, June 25, 1950, the north actually invades the south. They see that effectively as a war of liberation, of unifying Korea, that the, uh, there's support for it. Actually, there's been ongoing struggles with the People's Commissions against the regime you know, in, the, you know, in the south. Uh, for you know, national liberation in, you know, in, that, in, those, in those respects. There's some sympathies. Those, there's a struggle been going on when the North invades. There's some sympathy for you know, the North actually you know, invading. And within four days, actually, the, uh, the, the Korean People's Army crossing the 38th parallel, they've, actually, they've taken Seoul, you know, the capital of, the, of South Korea. Now, so the other thing, to put it in some context, I suppose, is that you've also got two other things which have taken place just prior to 1950. So you've got the end of the war, then you've got the uh, Russia actually gets the bomb um, and it has the first successful testing of the nuclear weapons in uh, August 1949. And you've also got the uh, 
the triumph of Mao's, you know, Mao's campaign in China in December you know, 1949. So the prelude to what happens in 1950, I think internationally, is kind of, you know, kind of set that way. You've got the end of, end of the war, you've emerged with you know, Russia on the one hand and the US on the other as being the two major powers of the world. 49, as I said, Russia actually gets the bomb. Massive uh, success for socialism. I'll come back to that in, uh, with, uh, you know, with China in 49. So when the Korean People's Army actually crossed the 38th parallel and takes Seoul within four days, actually the United States is pretty panicked about the things. Very quickly gets a resolution. That's another story again. The resolution through the UN and effectively builds a coalition of the willing. Six to 15 armies plus the US actually you know, invade South Korea to, to turn this, the, the Korean you know, army back. But to give some idea of the brutality of the regime, the first thing that the, there's about, the, first thing that the South Korean regime responds to after the Korean People's Army crosses is, is to actually ex execute about 2,000 political prisoners you know, in the South. Um, and to give a bit of an extended flavour of that, because uh, the, the backwards and forwards that happens after the, Korean, after the North, North Korea invades the South, uh, where they're pushed back and then take Seoul again. Actually, there's about to, when Seoul is taken the, se the second time after it's liberated, the second time liberated, when then the US forces actually take Seoul the second time, about 29,000 know, prisoners are, are actually executed. Then it's, it's estimated that about 100,000 of political prisoners and political opponents to the South, South Korean regime are actually killed by the South Korean you know, regime in that, um, you know, in that, that exchange. So I think the Korean War, as said by some of the bourgeois historians, is like the, uh, the S-11 of the 50s. You know, like it's, become, it's a, an absolute shock to the question of, uh, you know, of US power. And very quickly the US moves from the idea of actually containing Russia you know, as, a, as an imperial power, as a you know, rival imperialism, uh, to one of actually rolling it, rolling it back. And that also, people start to draw a little bit of connections influences what, the, uh, what America actually does you know, in Vietnam you know, subsubsequently. The North, the North invaded the South. You've got a, you know, the regime propped up by the US. The US you know, you know, quickly invades. What happens then is in October, about 250,000 Chinese troops actually join the struggle because Mao becomes very worried. Um, Kim Il-sung actually petitions Mao you know, on a number of occasions actually of supplying, you know, troops, you know, and to supporting the war in Korea. Mao gets very concerned, victory of socialism, the, you know, with the revolution, the US actually pushing back now and starts to push against the border. I mean, I won't go into it, but uh, the, the North Korea is absolutely flattened. You know about napalm in, the, in Vietnam. Napalm was first used, you know, in Korea, but it's a major air war and, and they effectively turn... North Korea into a wasteland, but it means that the US troops are actually pushed up against the border with China. Mao actually decides to support it. 250,000 Chinese troops joined the, the war in, in October 50. Um, and then uh, also around the similar kind of time, Russia explicitly joins. Now it's kind of a, <coughs> an, a, an unspoken uh, knowledge, uh, but effectively the air war that went on between the US and Russia was actually supported completely by uh, Russian pilots, Russian jets, which were dressed out in you know, North Korean uh, livery. So the, it's now relatively accepted you know, that, and most of the things you read about Korea actually describe it as a proxy war, uh, an inter-imperialist war, a war between the US and Russia really. Russia provided, although 
there, a lot of the, there was a lot of the Chinese who died, but uh, Russia provided the the military, uh, the um, the armaments, the the money, um, etc., the encouragement for for Mao. And in some respects, it's the term when the settlement finally comes. Actually, the thing which is signed is between Russia, China, and the U.S. Yeah, so South Korea actually hasn't signed the uh, the armistice or the ceasefire, but it's a bit of an indication of actually who were the major powers. So now, so as bourgeois historians accept it as an imperialist thing, but for the left at the time. That overwhelmingly, they supported the North. Um, they supported the North because they supported Russia. They saw Russia as being you know, some kind of socialism, uh, representing socialism in some kind of way. That's the way it was actually you know, sort of posed. Even the, even the Trotskyists left, who were critical of Stalinism, uh, nonetheless you know, supported, uh, supported the North. I'm, again, I'll, you know, I suppose I'll go on to talk about that now because I think the issue of why the left actually supports the North in those circumstances is because of the nature, the nature of Russia. So, of course, the argument about the nature of Russia doesn't start in 1950 with the, with the Korean War. The nature of what Russia is actually well, starts a long time ago, but in particular it's posed very sharply with the end of the war um, because of Trotsky's you know, kind of predictions about what the war was going to mean for the, you know, for the international, international left. And there are two fundamental things that he argued, was that Stalinism couldn't survive the war, that Stalinism was inherently you know, unstable. They talked about it being like a ball bearing on the top of a pyramid, that it was you know, something either way, going to be worker struggle or capitalist restoration, something would, that's how unstable it was, was going to roll down one side or other of the, you know, <coughs> of the pyramid. So state, Russia was um, uh, unstable. And the second was that there was going to be an international crisis of capitalism that it was you know unlikely it was you know, sometimes talked about in terms of there being a terminal uh, crisis and many people were expecting that because of the you know the experience of the first world war the experience of the the 30s which had led uh, you know to the war people were expecting there to be another you know major crash in the system following the second world war the fact is that neither of those those things happened and for Many of the, uh, the well, not for many of the left, but for inside the Trotskyist uh, movement who are expecting, you know, one or well, both of those things to actually happen at the end of the war, it start the, the reality, one, actually Russia emerges much stronger. The success of China in creating a look-alike Russian regime actually makes it look like socialism at the time, really existing socialism, is actually stronger and on the march, not unstable. Not uh, you know not retreating, and in terms of the crisis of capitalism, actually we know now that uh, it was the beginning of the longest period of economic boom in world capitalism that we've kind of experienced. And for people on the ground, it was very obvious there wasn't a crisis. I mean, some there are very various various funny stories about various bits of Trotskyism trying to argue that somehow or other the crisis was still going on, even though living standards were expanding and unemployment was falling, and, and you know and so forth. What added to the problem about was um, the nature of Russia itself. At the end of the Second World War, of course, not only did you have the emergence of Russia as a you know, stronger imperialist power, but you had all the lookalike Russian satellite states you know, had now created socialism as a result of Red Army invasions. So you had a double or a triple problem for, you know, for Trotskyism. Actually, you've got all these states which look like Russia, but actually... Most of the Trotskyists at the time regarded those states as capitalists, even though they were taken over by Russia, they called themselves people democracies. There'd been no revolution in any of those countries. Russia had had a revolution. The Eastern European satellites hadn't. They regarded them as capitalists. But then it becomes increasingly you know, a contradiction. On the one hand, there's some version of socialism in Russia, but all these other countries now, they're capitalists. No, there's been no revolution there, but 
the lookalike quality raises the question about what is the nature of those Eastern European states. And that's where you know, the arguments about the nature, the nature of Russia actually become you know, particularly important. As I said, the, the argument starts before 1950. 1950 brings it to a head in some ways. But Cliff, he wasn't the first person to talk about you know, state capitalism, actually the argument about state capitalism or Russia being some version of state capitalism was around you know, a long time before Cliff. But Cliff was part of the, the fourth international part of the Trotskyist um, you know, international organisations you know, at the time. And they started to emerge, not from Cliff actually, but critics inside the Trotskyist movement started to say there was a problem with you know, the way you know, Russia had been understood. And one section in particular had argued that it was capitalist. Cliff was tasked with the job of actually applying to that. So the Trotskyist movement goes to Cliff and say, look, we've got this bit of an argument. These people are saying it's some kind of capitalism in Russia. You know, go away and do a job on this. Well, Cliff goes away and does a job, uh, but actually the more he looks at it, the more he becomes convinced that it's right. Russia is capitalist. And in 1948, he writes The Class Nature of, you know, of Stalinist Russia, which is the first kind of major exposition of not just that it was capitalist, but it's actually explaining the dynamic of how, you know, the, how the law of value operates inside, you know, inside Russia, how the you know, competition between you know, Russia and the West reproduces you know, the actual dynamics of capitalism you know, inside Russia. And of course, one of the things about that is that actually capitalism reproduces you know, capitalism actually reproduces its own grave diggers. You know, that the workers of Russia aren't slaves, you know, the way some, you know, Trotsky, they're not Trotskyists saw it, they're not some kind of minions in a, you know, a, a bureaucratic regime which has no dynamism, but they actually have got a class power in the same kind of way as, <coughs> as Marx argued for proletarians everywhere, the capacity to actually bring down their exploiters and begin to create, you know, real socialism. So Cliff writes The Class Nature in 1948. In 1950, actually almost on the verge of the war, he, he, he has a follow-up article about the nature of the people's democracies, you know, to deal with, okay, we've got Russia, what, what's actually happened in the, in, the, you know, in the satellites, so he writes that in 1950. In November 1950, after the outbreak of war, Cliff actually writes another article called The Struggle, uh, the Struggle of the Powers. Um, and it's in, at the end of that where, I'll, just, I'll quote this a little bit, he writes, In the mad rush for profit, for wealth, the two gigantic imperialist powers... Russia and the United States are threatening the existence of world civilization. He's talking about the Korean War. Are threatening humanity with terrible suffering of atomic war. The interests of the working class of humanity demand that neither of the imperialist world powers be supported, but that both be struggled against. The battle cry of the real, genuine socialists today must be neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. And that's where the slogan actually comes from. But it comes from, in that sense, inside the Trotskyist movement, there's a and in, in a growing um, intense uh, you know, argument uh, over the nature of, nature of Russia, the people's democracies, but the Korean War actually poses it particularly sharply, and the leaders of the you know, Trotskyist movement actually say that now the nature of the war means that it's the war between Russia and the West which defines the fundamental antagonisms you know, of world capitalism. Right, so, that, so that the war itself it becomes actually in its own kind of way a struggle for socialism. Uh, so that's kind of where the support... <coughs> so that's the, level, that's the nature and it's the level at which they actually put... And I won't go into it, but there's a particular meeting which takes place in Britain uh, where some sections of people who've been arguing with Cliff have already been expelled. Jerry Healy actually goes around the room, you know, sort of asking whether people are actually going to be prepared to uh, support those people who are expelled and anyone who says they were prepared to... They were, they were suspe suspended never to be you know, rein, uh, reinstated. 
to the uh, to the to the you know, Trotskyist movement. So, and that was the beginning of the Socialist Review Group. Uh, was the beginning of the way in which the you know the origin of the international socialists in that respect, you know, come out of the way in which the Korean War posed that question to Russia, you know, particularly particularly sharply. But it does one it does one other thing actually, a recognition that. Russia is, Russia is capitalist um, and that what you've got in the Korean War is actually a struggle between two forms of capitalism. So you've got an inter-imperialist war uh, that the left shouldn't support you know, Russia against the United States in that war, but, but it is an inter-imperialist war. It does one other thing, actually, that recognition of you know, Russia being socialist, and that is that um, for what happens you know, after the Second World War, we see a lot of the, the national liberation struggles, which we've talked about on other, you know, on other occasions, but the thing which blurred for a lot of the, you know, the Trotskyist left, the far left, uh, out of that period was that there was a constant confusion uh, about the nature of those national liberation struggles, because if they were struggling to create states which looked like Russia, or looked like the, the satellites of Russia, then there was always a blur about whether they weren't actually some kind of struggle for socialism in the context of those, you know, those national liberation struggles. Whereas if you go back to, you know, look at, you know, Lenin and Lenin's argument about the rights, the rights of nations to self-determination, although his argument is infused by how do we actually get the struggle for socialism? Why do the, why do the workers and the, and the revolutionary parties in the uh, advanced capitalist countries, if you like, have to support the national liberation struggles? It's because they actually weaken, you know, weaken imperialism and, and to the extent that they weaken imperialism makes it... Um, Easier and makes it imperative for the you know for the workers in those imperialist states actually to support uh, the national liberation struggles against their own you know their own workers. So the sense in which that struggle of national liberation aid the question of socialism, and there wasn't any question about that they were socialist. Right, the national liberation struggles you know weren't socialist, but for after the war, that confusion actually starts to blur what those struggles are actually about. And I'm not going to go into a lot of that, a lot of detail about that, but it does mean that for the international socialist tradition, if recognising you know that the national liberation struggles required unconditional unconditional support, but they weren't they weren't struggles for socialism, and that discussion is actually kind of quite important because it raises the issue about actually if you're in in those <coughs> national liberation struggles, the question is not for that for you. It's a question of a struggle for socialism every bit as as much as it is if you are in the you know the imperialist countries. And I think that's what's also important about the overriding, I suppose, issue, issues about understanding the nature of war. So you look at the, a couple of the questions I just wanted to, to deal with. That is that it's not a question of how the war starts. Right? So, you know, the First World War for Lenin uh, and, the, you know, the, the anti-imperialists, you know, left at the time, it was, we know, you know, that, you know, Germany invaded France. But that didn't alter the nature of the war. It wasn't a question of who invaded who. It was an, an inter-imperialist rivalry. It was driven by imperialism, driven by a question of markets and for breakup of the, you know, break up of the, the, the colonies. You, know, you can take, take more recently the war between Iraq and Iran, 1980 to 1988. Right? You know, it wasn't a question, I think, Iraq invaded Iran, but it wasn't a question for socialists at the time who invaded who to work out which side you won. That was a, it was a struggle between you know, two you know, capitalist states and socialists, you know, advance the same kind of version of neither Washington, you know, nor Moscow, but there needed to be a struggle inside Iran and Iraq, you know, for socialism and the workers of Iraq had to, you know, the, had to, you know, look, find ways of actually bringing down, you know, Saddam Hussein in the same way as, the, you know, the workers of Iran had to look, bring down the Ayatollahs and they had a common interest to, you know, to struggle together. 
Okay, and the same kind of thing applies. You know, so Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait in 1990. The starting point for revolutionaries wasn't well. Saddam invaded Kuwait, therefore, you know, Saddam's to, you know to blame. Actually, the nature of the war is not described by who crosses the border, but by understanding the overall political circumstances in which the war, you know, takes place. And I guess that brings me to the other part. I think, which is part of the analysis, is that being anti-imperialist, recognising that the main enemy is at home, is not about being soft on the other side. It's not about thinking, oh, the other imperialism is somehow better, or it's, you know, to be invited in. Uh, it would be much greater to be, if you're in Russia, to be ruled by German capitalists than Russia, Russian capitalists. That's not the argument. And I think you can see that, well, you can see that, I think, if you go back and actually look at the, <clears throat> you know, look at the actual revolutionary arguments that, you know, that people make. But I was going to use a couple of examples. You know, Connolly, the people may be familiar with in the circumstances of, you know, of Ireland. And Connolly, one of the things that stands out about Connolly is that he's, in, you know, an implacable argument that if, that if Ireland is going to be free, it's not going to be free by aligning itself with green capitalism. It's not going to be with, the, with, the, with Irish nationalists. Actually, there has to be a pol politically independent movement of working class struggle against the green capitalists and, of course, against British, you know, British domination if, you know, if Ireland is going to be genuinely free. You can see that, I think, in other ways, which I'm not going to, I haven't got you know, time to go into. Not, you, you can also see the way that we talk about the way in which the Zimmerwald left in the outbreak of the First World War. A very tiny number of people who recognise you know, that it's important to take a stand, that socialists needed to take a stand against the war, and you know, ultimately, you know, not ultimately, but extremely critical of the collapse of the reformist parties at the time who had sided with their own ruling classes you know, in, the, in the war, voted for war credits, you know, etc., etc., very small number of people. Now we talk about the way in which peace, bread and land, the slogans of the Bolsheviks, becomes a way in which the Bolshevik organisation is able to put into practice the demands of the Zimmerwald Peace Conference. The rest of the left is actually very, very small. But there's a reason why the success of Russia in 1917, the revolution in 1917, actually invites support from around the world. And that is because whole chunks of the left who didn't in all, in all the countries that involved in the First World War, who didn't necessarily think of themselves as conscious revolutionary socialists, but nonetheless were horrified you know, about, the, you know, about the war and looked for ways of actually organising you know, against the war. And even in their own ways, of the IWW in Australia, you know, Gordon Child, who was um, very active in the anti-war movement in Britain and in, in, you know, in Australia as well. And you can see when you look at what they did in terms of that struggling against the war, and there's a constant discussion going on you know, amongst them about the nature of the war, in whose interests, uh, you know, we're, 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 how do we respond to the, the arguments. But none of it talks about, you know, well, wouldn't German capitalism be great? You know, what they talk about is how do you organise against your own, own ruling class? What they deal with is the consequences of the war inside their own national boundaries, dealing with the inequality, you know, they're dealing with the class oppression, the ongoing class exploitation, the demands for, you know, greater and greater sacrifice from the working class, both in terms of dying on the front, but in terms of the, you know, the economic sacrifices uh, at home. There's, they, they're what infuse the, the anti-war movements. And when, in that sense, the revolution in 1917 gives a, a practical expression to what's, you know, taken place, uh, to, to the, the way in which that you know, anti-imperialist um, politics can be put into practice, it's why it actually strikes a chord, because there are socialists and people all over the world actually looking for ways in which they can actually struggle against the consequences of war inside their own borders. So I think that's what I wanted to, to stress, is that what they did was to look at 
having to explain the war. Where's the, where's the war come from? You know, who's actually motivated the war? Who's making the sacrifices? What's the nature of this war? And looking all the times for actually fanning the flames you know, of the class struggle which takes place in spite of the war, being absolutely determined that they weren't going to subordinate the class struggle you know, to, the, uh, to the war effort. Um, and there's lots and lots of examples that I could go into, but I'll just pick one, which is, comes from just prior to the war, actually, of the Workers' International League in, you know, in Britain. And um, they go along to a, a meeting which has been actually called by the, the Communist Party. Won't go, that's another little complication, I suppose, because the Communist Party, in terms of the Second World War, was in favour of the war, then against, against the war when Stalin doesn't join the war effort and then when Stalin does join the war effort they flip over again but here the Trotskyists in 1939 they go on to this meeting and they move an amendment demanding that the Labour Party should take power, the working class should be armed, the economy should be nationalised, the colonies freed and a class appeal should be made to the German and Italian workers. Nothing in there about you know um, it's about how do we organise inside Britain against the, the warmongers and against our own rulers as a way in which can actually, we can actually make a class appeal to the workers in, you know, to the workers in Europe. And I think that's what's, that's what's critical to you know, the anti-imperialist position. If you, by taking that um, clear position against your own ruling class, it's a way in which you can make common cause you know, with, you know, to make that appeal to, with, some, with some prospects of success uh, to, the, uh, to the workers and the soldiers, the, you know, the antagonistic power. Okay, maybe that's enough. I just think in conclusion, I think the, re- the, the, not, the slogan neither Washington nor Moscow is not the slogan of today, you know, in that respect. It had a particular importance and a singular importance, you know, in, 19, in 1950 and I think for a whole, well, perhaps for a generation after that where so many of socialists actually identified, you know, with Russia and its lookalike countries in some ways, in some way <coughs> being socialist. Now that... That illusion is still, is still with us in various ways. You know, even they still get illusions, even with people who now will accept that Russia is a capitalist country. People still, nonetheless, will look at bits and pieces of the third world struggles as being you know, some kinds of form you know, of socialism because they see elements of state control or party control or you know, of, of elements of that, of nationalism. I don't see much nationalised property anymore. Uh, but you know, see things which look like you know, what Russia actually, actually looked like, except that some kind of that you can understand the, the nature of that society by the form in which, you know, capitalism actually, actually rules. Neither Washington nor Moscow actually punctures that. So while it hasn't got it's the same kind of importance, nonetheless the political content of neither Washington nor Moscow is absolutely crucial for us to understand, you know, the world as it, um, you know, as, as it exists today. I think the problem that we've got, in the same kind of way you had the problem in the Korean War is that for the Trotskyist left actually trying to understand the world they had a useless theory which actually came, came out, of, out of Trotsky. Trotsky's arguments about you know, what, the, what was going to happen to capitalism as a consequence of the war instead of actually applying the, you know, the substance of you know, Marx's ideas they tried to find ways in which you know, the prescription you know, of Trotsky they could apply those prescriptions of Trotsky to the world as they found it rather than looking at the world they found it to try to find the political arguments which explained it and pointed to the way, to the way forward. So in that respect, I think it's not so much that we need the, well, neither Washington nor Moscow still remains an extremely important political slogan and political understanding, the kind of ideas, I think, which meant that, uh, you know, that cliff and the international socialists, you know, found its way to neither Washington or Moscow, the way in which it maintained that in, in, within that slogan, it wasn't a question, it was 
an absolute insistence, you know, of the basic elements of, of Marx. That, you know, the, that socialism, unless there's workers' power, there is no socialism. That the, the fundamental questions are not the form of capitalism that takes place, but the fundamental question about is between workers and those, and those who exploit them. And in that respect, I think we have to do the, you know, the same thing today to understand the world around us and in particular, you know, the struggles of, you know, the, of, you know, of war and imperialism that we see throws up all kinds of, all kinds of complications in which we have to do exactly what the international socialists did in 1950. You know, not be, you know, shackled uh, by the kind of the you know the politics of theories which don't explain anything, but to look to find that you know the actual content of you know Marxist understanding of the you know the world to apply them you know to uh, you know to the world you know as you find it because the task remains as it did you know in 1950 at the argument at that time it was a singularly remote ex you know position you know to take on the left to actually understand the nature of what was happening uh, in Korea that it was a it was a struggle between two you know, imperialist powers and to argue that, but the, the content of that and the understanding of it, you know, I think still um, is absolutely crucial for us to understand the world today and understand how we can build the struggles against imperialism and the struggles for socialism.